welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading. And uh, joining me on the podcast today, as ever, is Kelsey Zeiser, my colleague. Hello, Kelsey. Hello, Phil. <laughs> That's a good accent. I like that. <laughs> um, thanks for thanks for the variety. Because uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought I'd I'd mix it up with a, a very poor. Um, what was it Dick Van Dyke who did like the work? <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> now, in order to uh, to round out your uh, homage to Mr. Van Dyke, you need to uh, uh, trip over an ottoman uh, and somehow <laughs> put that on the internet. So I'm I'm kind of clumsy. So okay, well, <laughs> I'm sure I can trip over. The something. bar has been set. Uh, no, I appreciate the variety of responses because I never know what I'm looking for when I say, how's it going? Because it's just like, we're in a pandemic and good Lord, the response could be anything. So, you know. <laughs> um, Still in a pandemic. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you just start crying. <laughs> Maybe that's what our intro should be for all the podcasts. It's just both of us crying. <laughs> Uh, so sorry. Okay. Anyway, um, our audience has left, but uh, if you are still hanging around, um, uh, you're in luck because we have an, uh, an interview with uh, uh, Brett Lindsay, CEO of EverStream. And uh, this is a very interesting fiber provider that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, solely targeted on, on the Midwest, solely targeted on delivering fiber to uh, you know cell towers for 5G enterprises for all their enterprise things. And uh, it was a pretty good conversation. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting um, to hear their approach versus um, the incumbents and who they see as their competitors. And um, he also had some really interesting insight on um, how uh, fiber buildouts have have changed for them during the pandemic. So some surprising answers there i won't spoil it though so yeah you have to listen no it's 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 a <laughs> perfect introduction uh and, and you're actually it's funny you 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 uh you tee it up for everybody and then you gloat about the fact that you know more than they do <laughs> that's, a, that's some good hosting right there kelsey okay oh, thanks. Um, I try. <laughs> we will get right into it then let's not keep you waiting uh, uh brett Lindsay, ceo of everstream uh you'll hear from him right after this This podcast is sponsored by Nokia, proud builder of IP and optical communications infrastructure, the beating heart of the networks that keep us all going. Nokia IP and optical, the foundation for what's to come. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today, uh, Brett Lindsay, the CEO of EverStream. Uh, Hello, Brett. How are you? I'm great. Good afternoon. Uh, Thanks for being on the podcast. I do appreciate it. I have a lot of questions about EverStream, uh, and our our, uh, our audience needs to get to know the company a bit and to get to know you by extension. Um, so let's start there. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how long EverStream's been around and uh, and what what exactly you're in the business of of doing? I know you provide uh, uh, bandwidth to businesses, but uh, uh, perhaps you can be a bit more uh, a bit more artful in your description than I just was. <laughs> Uh, we build, own, and operate fiber optic networks in Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Missouri, and are actively focused on enterprise business customers as well as wholesale carriers and the wireless service providers in connecting their locations across our footprint. Okay, so you're a, a carrier to other carriers in, in some instances, and then just a direct provider of broadband access to, to other enterprises. That's exactly right. So for us, you would think of us our direct competitors are AT&T and whoever the cable operator is in that specific market that we're serving. 
so yeah, that's what I was going to say is who, who, you know, there are other, uh, uh, I guess fiber provider, fiber specialist out there. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, Zayo group, cogent people like that. Do you ever see those, uh, in, in competitive situations or are those companies, is that business maybe more regional than I think it is? Yeah, we rarely see them. They're really focused on national companies and trying to provide kind of long haul connectivity in a lot of ways. Their metro assets are not as robust as ours. Uh, we specifically are focused on building dense fiber networks in each of the markets that we operate in so that we can service not only obviously the downtown urban areas in each market, but all of the suburban so think of it in this way, um, if you take Cleveland for an example, we actually service five different phone companies' footprints. So we run from the Pennsylvania border all the way to Indiana. So if I was today in Cleveland, I would be buying from AT&T or Spectrum for those services. But if I happen to be a few miles over, I'd have to buy from Windstream. If I was a few miles over the other way, I'd have to buy from CenturyLink, now Lumen. And instead, because of the dense nature and how we build our networks, you could buy services from us to service your enterprise across all of those competitive areas and have one vendor with EverStream. And so our intent is to have kind of that dominant role, we like to say, uh, in third place in every market. So AT&T is going to be in first. They've been around for 100 years. You've got the cable company that's been there for a long time, too. Um, and we want to be in third place. We want to be the obvious choice that you're going to go to. Uh, because of the amount of, of time, energy, and money that we've invested in each of these markets. Can you tell us a little bit about how um, you're funded? Are you um, VC-backed, for example? We are funded by AMP Capital, which is a infrastructure fund. Uh, if, if you kind of watch what's happened over the last several years, especially in the fiber space, um, the predominant new owner of fiber assets are infrastructure funds, and that's pretty much moving the same into tower companies as well as uh, data centers. So for us, AMP Capital is part of AMP, which is a large insurance company in Australia. Uh, AMP Capital, headquartered in London, is focused on infrastructure. So think things like they own airports and parking garages, fiber assets, um, toll roads, things like that. And most of the infrastructure funds have gotten into the communication space because they were looking for the types of returns that we generate for them with an asset that is now viewed as something that's going to last decades into the future. And that kind of that switch of communications infrastructure being considered, quote unquote, infrastructure for for those types of funds really happened in the last three years. And so I, I think if you look at all of the regional providers that are out there today that are similar to EverStream, so folks like First Light or uh, Segra, they are both owned by large infrastructure funds as well. Oh, that's interesting. Do, does that change the dynamic in um, how you're able to compete? against companies like AT&T and, you know, uh, publicly listed companies that are, um, you know, also the service and consumer facing end, uh, you know, brand? I think for us, it's actually extraordinarily beneficial. So, you know, in the past, we were owned by a private equity firm and a private equity firm has a shorter time horizon that they're after for you to generate income for them and have some kind of an eventual sale process. So most of the infrastructure funds uh, operate under a 10 plus one plus one, meaning that their kind of investment horizon is 10 years plus one year plus one year, or a total of 12 years that they will look to stay in a specific investment. I think the benefit for us is just the sheer size of the infrastructure fund. So the fund on the private equity side that we were with before was 350 million. The fund that we're with in AMP is 3.5 billion. And so the difference is the amount of capital that they could put in to us to support our 
expansion plans, acquisitions, et cetera, make it easier for us to operate against um, well-capitalized, publicly traded uh, competitors. No, that makes sense. Yeah, because I was—I I guess I—I I was wondering that mostly in terms of like, um, you know, your ability to compete is tied very closely to, like you said, what assets you have in the ground and how you can reach certain certain buildings and certain uh, facilities. And I was just thinking, like, well, if you if you found a strategic reason to go after a, a set of you know companies, buildings, developments. Um, are, are you able to make that decision or is that something where you have to kind of, um, you know, put it in a yearly plan and, and, and see if it gets approved all the way up the chain, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a bit more fluid than that. I mean, I think you, you set with some initial benchmarks on what you plan to do for, say, you know, when you sell your company to somebody, they're going to look for what are your expectations for the next three to five years. So when they're acquiring you, I think they have a pretty good idea of what you're doing. But you know, we have we went to AMP back in 2019 um, with the idea of building out the Midwest and and effectively asking for 250 million dollars to go do that in advance of having customers. And you know, so in the late 90s, when you had everyone and their brother wanted to become a new telephone company because of the Telecom Act in '96, there was a there was a bit of idiocy running around where you had you know in a market the size of Columbus, Ohio, which I was living in at the time. You had eight new phone companies trying to compete with AT&T, and most of them went bankrupt and spent billions of dollars. I think the difference now is that the, you know, what we like to talk about are all the macroeconomic trends that are driving utilization of fiber, data centers, mobile, cloud, organic internet growth, make you know that it, you know, it is a little bit of the build and they will come, but you know it's coming. There's a, a frankly, a tidal wave coming of needs for that fiber. So for us, it was, how do we go construct fiber in all of these networks so that when we have a customer come to us, it's already under construction and we can tell them that we can meet their specific needs. And so for us, it's been building out those markets across the Midwest so that we were ready for, and frankly, a lot of it had to do with ready for 5G. We had already built an enterprise sales engine that was working in other states, i.e. Ohio and Michigan, and carrying it forward into the other states was really predicated on the fact that okay, we know that we can win enterprise business. These are the same exact competitive dynamics that we have in our existing markets. So that's kind of checkbox one. We can go expand into those cities. Second, does AMP believe that we can construct fiber at a fast enough clip to make this happen in a period of time? Yes, we can do that. We're averaging over a million feet uh, a month of construction that's happening on a regular basis. So that's almost 200 miles of construction across our entire footprint. So, so check that. And the last one is, will the wireless carriers be coming to us for both upgrades required for 5G on the macro tower side as well as small cell. And yes, that's happened too. And so I think with us, that kind of fluid nature of the business is really more around, you know, as an acquisition presents itself, or we have a very large specific customer opportunity, that's really with AMP, no different than working with any other financial partner, just saying, hey, we have this opportunity. It makes sense. It generates the IRR that you guys require. Uh, is there any reason not to, you know, not to proceed with this? Um, and so they've been a great partner and allowing for us to go capitalize on those opportunities as they presented themselves. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that network expansion, what are some other things that you're doing differently to help 5G providers? Well, so the, the, I think the biggest thing that, that people think about with, with 5G and small cells is just, you know, how are you going to get those physical towers, you know, we'll call them baby towers, pizza boxes, antennas, whatever, up. And, and that clearly is the challenge, but none of it works without fiber. So from our perspective, the way that we make 5G a reality is by building as much fiber as possible, as quickly as possible in all of these different markets. 
uh, because that, that's really the challenge in rolling out 5G. If, if you have to not only go build a fiber network from scratch and start doing all of the antenna work, you're, you're in a you know, years long process. And that's really why we wanted to get started last year so that by the time we finished up 2020, those network assets are effectively in the ground and ready to go so that we're able to help support the rollout of 5G. Fortunately for us, we're in the Midwest, take Chicago out of it in more tier two, tier three markets. So the big push for 5G has really been in you know, the LA, the Boston, the New Yorks, the larger markets. And even in those markets, well, they will claim that they have 5G. Um, it's going to be a decade before 5G is fully rolled out across the US. So for us, I think we were, um, we were right on time with making that investment on the fiber side so that we would be ready to support the 5G rollout. This relates to our earlier discussion about the finance, you know, how the company's funded, but um, you've made a, a few acquisitions uh, in, in the past couple of, couple of years. Um, what prompted those? Were those mostly for assets? And, you know, is that is that part of the strategy as, as you continue on? I, I think really what you're trying to do is you're trying to amass as much fiber as possible. Um, you know, we say all fiber all the time, the guy with the most fiber wins, whatever you want to say that has to do with fiber. And so for us, it's really, you know, looking at the potential of doing an organic build or doing an acquisition or a mix of both in any specific market okay. after. But it really gets down to two things. One, where is the fiber? Is it dense? Is there enough fiber capacity in those specific areas? And second, what does the customer base look like? You know, in some instances, we'll get a very fiber rich network like we did with the acquisition of Rocket Fiber. Uh, downtown, 41 miles, exactly what we needed to help support 5G rollouts in the future. In Indianapolis, we acquired Lightbound, which was more of a customer focused acquisition. Send fiber counts, we knew we would overbuild it, but it helps generate revenue on assets that we were planning to build anyway. And how does your approach to um, fiber build-outs differ in rural versus urban areas? What are um, some different challenges there? Yeah, so the, the, the urban areas, no problem. Obviously, the, the internal rate return targets that we have, you can easily meet. That's no problem. The rural areas are tougher. And, and what you really have to have is an anchor customer that's pushing you that direction. Now, you know, for us, it can be a couple different things. We do very well in the healthcare space. And you can imagine as healthcare folks continue to acquire others, I mean, that's that's kind of the uh, um, McDonald's subway thing, right? So everyone has a clinic on one corner, then the next guy wants a clinic on the other corner. And so what we've been able to do is leverage healthcare in a way to push into the rural markets, because as one of our large health systems goes out that way, then their competitor immediately wants to. And so we'll look at all of that in determining, is does it make sense for us to build fiber in that area? The other part of that for us are the wireless carriers, obviously, because as they continue to further densify their network, and there have been specific things, right? You guys uh, know what's happened with T-Mobile's acquisition of Sprint and the commitment that T-Mobile made to the FCC on getting rural broadband available. Well, that doesn't happen without somebody building fiber to those macro towers. It doesn't really work with microwave the way that they used in the past. If they're going to generate and promise the types of speeds that 5G delivers, they have to have fiber. So for us, if we can figure out how to partner enterprise customers along with the wireless service provider, that, that pushes us towards those rural areas. Now, we are not going to fix the rural challenge of the digital divide or digital inclusion in those specific areas. I think that's a, that's a residential service that we don't provide. I do believe, though, that the way that that gets fixed is with the wireless service providers. For us, focused in the Midwest, the nice thing is some of those rural areas are in between larger markets that we have. So if I'm going from Indianapolis to Chicago, there are places in between that are considered rural that we may be able to offer services and pick up because it helps our long-term play as well. 
I'm just picturing that there's some dairy queen in between Indianapolis and Chicago <laughs> that has like the fastest internet anybody's ever seen. <laughs> I'll find it if it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also have to admit something else to our audience because they, they know how dumb I am. And um, <laughs> when you said the McDonald's subway thing, you were referring to McDonald's and subway. They go into compete in different markets. And when there's one on one corner, they'll look and see, you know, and they'll build a, a competing restaurant on the other corner and they kind of use each other as competitive leverage. Um, in my stupid cartoon mind, I was actually thinking there was a subway connecting some McDonald's you know, <laughs> to, between the restaurants. And I was trying to picture how that worked. And I was like, wow, maybe they just send supplies back and forth. And then, it, you know, then, then I listened to the rest of your answer and it, it all cleared up. But yeah, uh, it kind of, anyway. it kind of works like the, you know, the bank, you send it up the tube. and it's just... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's just, just some poor, poor guy opening a thing and there's all these hamburgers that come down. All right, all right, you know what? I gotta, I gotta stop. This is a, this is a, this, this interview is about serious stuff here. We're, uh, we're, we're wiring the entire Midwest uh, as we speak. Um, uh, so I guess, I guess the last question, uh, you know, that I have about, about Everstream as a business. And then I just, you know, want to ask you a little bit about your own background. Um, Everstream as a competitive, uh, you know, as a competitor to, you know, AT&T and some of these others, I mean, does that cause uh, uh, tension or does that, does that, you know, automatically take you out of the way of getting some of that business? Because these companies are also, you know, trying to, uh, uh, light up cell towers and expand 5g as quickly as they can um so i'm just curious of whether your fiber you know your fiber only approach uh, maybe puts you in a uh, at a disadvantage to helping some of these larger carriers i don't think so i think it's actually just the opposite so for us you know when i look at folks like at&t so you know you've got at&t the phone company you've got at&t wireless you've got the time warner assets you know that they for content you've got direct tv all of those things are requiring capital for them to deploy and keep up with everything that's happening in those specific sectors. And they have an influx of competitors at every level. So for us on the kind of traditional phone company side where their fiber assets are, they're not deploying capital at the same rate that we are. So all of the big phone companies and cable companies buy from us. So we're building fiber in areas that they don't service. They're using us for their last mile connection. Wherever it doesn't make sense for their own capital usage, they're buying from us. That will continue. The large carriers are all doing the same thing. That wholesale business of ours is growing month over month by people coming to us because we have the fiber network. And frankly, because we're not competing with them on some of the other services that they sell. Some of the opportunities that we've had, especially with the wireless service providers, have been some of the MSOs out there have decided to get into the mobile space. So if I'm getting into the mobile space, do I also want to be helping my competitors by improving their speeds to the towers that they have in my footprint? They've said no. And so we've been able to pick up that opportunity and provide fiber to those macro towers for the wireless carriers instead of them winning that business. And, and we've continued to see that the demands on the capital for each of those different companies has made it harder for them to compete against us. Because again, they have five different ways that they could go spend that dollar of, of invested money. Uh, where we have one, which is building more fiber in every single network that we operate. So for us, I think the belief is that by sticking to our knitting and being all fiber all the time, we are effectively the best partner for them because they know that the only thing that we're looking to do is construct more fiber and give them more access to support their business. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. 
And um, has your fiber build out activity um, sped up or slowed down during the pandemic? Has there been any um, noticeable impact there? In general, it's sped up for a couple of reasons. One, the roads are empty or emptier, so it's easier to physically be outside <laughs> yeah. doing oh, yeah. construction. That's a good point. Um, we've been uh, also fortunate that you know we, we've seen a, uh, a pretty decent response from our customers. You know, healthcare, enterprise customers, wireless carriers, all of those folks have had increased bandwidth demands during COVID. So our business has grown pretty significantly during COVID. And you know, if there's one positive for people that are in our specific sector, our business has done very well because of it. The challenges really have been, if there has been, are in some of these smaller communities where we're building in, you know, a little town in Indianapolis, you know, north of Indianapolis or outside Chicago, and they have two permitting folks and they're working from home. And we're doing things literally like taking checks and drawings and putting them in people's personal mailboxes so that they will look at them and then we go back and pick them up and get our permits approved. So just trying to be creative <laughs> in dealing with people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and kind of going to wherever they are to keep things moving. Um, but we have been able to construct more fiber than forecasted uh, through all of 2020. And so, you know, I, I sure hope that by the time we get to next spring, this thing's gone and everything's back to normal. Um, but for us, frankly, the uh, construction pace has been uh, faster than we expected. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point and added benefit for people not having a commute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Clearing the roads for construction. Yeah, I hadn't thought about yeah. that. Thanks for giving us a window into the uh, charm and frustrations of local politics, you know, trying, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get to permitting things. I mean, this, we, you know, we've, we've had some discussions in a similar vein when we talked to folks about smart city stuff, you know, and that was, that was like, always a, a, one of the levers that kind of controlled how quickly cities, uh, you know, carriers could, could work with cities and, you know, build out capacity and put up small cells and stuff like that. Um, uh, well, okay, we'll let you go. But the last thing is uh, just to talk a, l- a little bit about yourself, uh, where uh, uh, I know you've been at Everstream for a few years, but uh, were you in the telco business before or were you on the money side or were you in uh, something entirely different? How did you get to be uh, in in this space? Uh, I grew up always wanting to sell telecom from the time I was like three years old. Uh, no, I, ha- I, had a, I, had a, I had a mentor. I don't need these Legos. <laughs> I'm going to slice the fiber right now, Dad. Um, Dad, who owns the rights away to my kitchen? Um, so that I, would uh, be your mom. I had a mentor in college uh, that was in the communications industry. He was CEO of a company in California. And I thought, wow, you've got a decent life. What did you do? And he explained, you know, I went to school. I got out. I went to work for AT&T. Um, divestiture happened where they broke up AT&T. I went to work for one of the operating companies. I then connected with an investor group and started running my own. And I thought, okay. So I finished school. I started working for Wiltel selling telephone systems. The Telecom Act happened in 1996. Uh, I moved to Ohio to help uh, what was the next link, which later became XO, which is now part of Verizon, uh, start building out fiber networks across the Midwest. Um, so doing this with EverStream is now the third time. So I did that at NextLink. I did that again at Quest, which is now part of Lumen, uh, and and now uh, with EverStream. So for me, um, have been competing and taking business from the incumbents my entire career. Um, I think it's the best competitive dynamic possible. Um, they're the best folks to compete against because it's a little bit easier, I think, than uh, competing against folks like ourselves. And it's also why we're very focused on being in the Midwest and trying to control that area. It doesn't make sense for folks like us to be, you know, battling it out with a First Light or a Unite or a Segra or whatever. I mean, we we really have a differentiator in the markets because we're competing against 
big boys. And that's what I love to do every day. It's fantastic. Well, we do appreciate you uh, taking a, a, a time out of your uh, busy competitive schedule and uh, uh, talking over all this stuff with us. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. That's it. That's our show for today. Thanks to our amazing producer, Tian Fu, for all his hard work editing the podcast. And also a big thanks to our listeners for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have any ideas about a future podcast topic or a potential guest for the show, please email us at editors at lightreading.com. Please also tell a friend to subscribe and thanks for listening to the Light Reading Podcast. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Nokia, proud builder of IP and optical communications infrastructure, the beating heart of the networks that keep us all going. Nokia IP and optical, the foundation for what's to come.